Hello, welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan and my co-host Christine. So today we are joined by Salt, who I've known in the free and open source software world for for quite a while. But um, Salt, maybe it's actually best if you introduce yourself. Yeah, hi. I, I do go by Salt and he him. I am living in Seattle, Washington. And have been using Linux operating systems for oh boy, uh, was that twenty five years? Oh wow! Wait, thirty? Oh, when was nineteen ninety six? When was nineteen ninety six? It's thirty, right? No, it's it's tw- it's twenty five. Oh my gosh! That's twenty twenty one. Then it's twenty five years ago. Yeah. Yep. There we go. Okay. So yeah, that's uh, that was kind of my introduction to some of the free software world, and I don't know. It's taken me all sorts of places. I ran the Grayscale Linux user group for uh, eight years, and now I've been running Seagull, the Seattle Cthulhu Linux conference, for nine years. And I'm currently studying at the University of Washington in the Department of Communication under Benjamin Mako Hill, and going on my fifth year uh, in that PhD program. I have previous degrees in computer science and communication, and just really like thinking about the intersection between like the actual people side of these bases. I was involved in InfoSec for about 10 years and just found the free software community to be a little a little closer to the, the things I wanted to do and uh, the sort of people I wanted to be around. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. So you're you're studying with as you said Benjamin Magel Hill who's, you know, been well known for 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 doing actually some academic research on the state of free and open source software and how communities have grown. And my my understanding is that that's related to your own research here? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, we're part of the Community Data Science Collective, which has, well, now it's been growing to multiple universities as different students graduate. We're really interested in like doing data science, as you might expect, on communities and uh, specifically the communities that I'm interested in largely because I'm a part of, but also I think are like of vast importance to uh, humanity's future, are uh, peer production communities. People are coming together to create things and giving of themselves uh, versus monetizing them. If you've been listening to our podcast, you know that we have recently recorded two episodes on my dissertation topic, and Salt and I were kind of dissertation and thesis buddies in the Foss and Crafts channel because Salt was finishing uh, his thesis while I was finishing my dissertation. So we kind of gave each other IRC pep talks. So today we are going to do a episode about Salt's thesis topic. Salt, would you like to tell us what that topic is? Sure. Thank you. So the title of the thesis is Resilience in Floss. Uh, do founder decisions impact development activity after crisis events? And speaking kind of how I got here kind of broadly, I, I'm really interested in, of course, free libre open source software and just the, the kind of phenomenon that that is. But I have struggled to find anyone who's really been addressing or trying to address uh, the question of founder decisions. Mm-hmm. And so founder decisions are this idea of like, hey, we have... Uh, especially with uh, floss projects, we have one person who is like started it and made all these choices, but then we have a bunch of other people later on who get involved. Can we identify how impactful those early choices were later on? 
And because a lot of the work that I've been doing at school has been statistics driven and this data science stuff, I looked at the toolbox, looked at the projects and was like, well, if I can look later down the line at a single point, then I can run a statistical analysis that maybe I can actually see where that founder decision came from and how it was impactful later. And uh, in that sense, the thing that I, I look at later on is this idea of a crisis event. Yeah. And I, I can, I guess, go further into each of the concepts. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So free Libre and open source software communities, then uh, being impacted by early decisions from a founder, that makes sense. It seems like that would be hard to measure if you were searching across a lot of different projects, aggregating that information, it feels like it would be difficult because like those decisions often happen in ways that are not really captured in a metadata like way for many types of decisions, right? Like some of them, like, you know, maybe uh language choice and the choice of like licensing and stuff like that. Uh, maybe you could find those, but other decisions like what our communication style is and stuff like that, it would probably be difficult to pull out automatically. And and likewise for crisis events, right? So what approaches did you take to be able to, I guess, uh, analyze those early stage events of the founder's decisions and then the kind of later stage events of the crisis events? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. It was a little tricky to uh, find something that would be measurable and would be comparable across. So for the founder decision, you've hit the nail on the head on at least two of the more obvious ones. The one that I ended up going with was license choice. And I specifically looked at the kind of dichotomy between protective and permissive licenses. Uh, as far as my kind of data set, I, I wanted to draw from a very large one, but also that was meaningful in this context. That's where I used Debian's uh, repositories specifically looking at the source packages and the time looking at busters, but I will probably be redoing it here on Bullseye fairly soon. Wait, wait, not everybody's going to know what buster and Bullseye mean here. Could you could you explain that? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I do not know what those are. And and also, could you explain what Debian is and why you chose Debian specifically? Like, what, what did Debian give you as in terms of information? Because not everybody who listens to this, A, might know who Debian, uh, what Debian is, B, might not know what Buster and Bullseye mean, um, and why why they're useful. No, absolutely. Thank you. So Debian is a GNU Linux distribution. So Linux is the like underlying kernel, and a bunch of people get together around these different distributions to distribute pieces of software as like a package, like operating system you might think of. Debian is one of the biggest and oldest. I think it was 93, maybe, is, is when it was founded. Uh, it's, it's one of the ones that I use uh, most and have used most over the years. And it's kind of most well known for its seriousness about governance and community structure, for one thing. For one thing, uh, one of the other things it's really known for is by default, they only allow software that is freely licensed. And in fact, the open source definition is largely a remix of the Debian Free Software Guidelines. And so this idea that it is kind of steeped in in that space and, and has kind of that requirement made it so every package I'm looking at in Debian was going to have one of these licenses. Um, so I was I would be able to clearly separate and group them without having to remove too many things. And the idea is also that the licenses are not something that changes that often. So 
you should get a pretty good idea if something's marked with a license that it, that was probably the license it has been and that that that's something that likely probably kind of shaped things long term for the project is that right right absolutely and and one of my you know, theories on here is that so i'm i'm a communication major uh, i'm just the computer science arm of communication but i wanted to say like what in a project communicates things to the potential developers and the potential community coming around to build it. And the license is one of those things that I can look at two projects that are identical except for their license and have a fair idea that one is going to maybe run one way or my work contributing to it will be applied in a certain way because of these software licenses, which are basically legally binding contracts that say when I contribute to a project, my code for all future days, will be licensed under these terms. Oh, and the, the one other thing with Debian, we, we talked about Buster and Bullseye. Debian has different releases where everyone says, okay, these are the packages that we're going to ship with. And Debian is, is also specifically known for, when they say stable, they kind of mean stable. <laughs> uh, if a package doesn't make it in or has lots of updates, they don't include it in their stable release until... It's, it's thoroughly tested, integrated, and vetted. And so I'm looking at a corpus of just Debian stable. And at the time, it was uh, Buster was the code name. And the new one that was released weeks ago is uh, Debian Bullseye. So if we're talking about founders' decisions, are there examples when the founders' decisions were reversed later in the project, either with or without the founders' input? Yeah, definitely. And I... Because I'm doing kind of this broad space statistical analysis, I have less information about specific stories and specific projects in this work. But one of my key uh, variables of interest, and I I know we're kind of bouncing around a little. Um, So we talked about the founder decision. The other thing I look at is the crisis event. And the crisis events uh, have a few specific ones that are broadly conceptualized. I'm always looking for new ones, so if, if folks have uh, suggestions to input. But one is called a forking event, and that's where a group basically takes a piece of software and says, we don't like the direction it's going, but because it's free software, we're just going to draw a line in the sand, change the name, and uh, develop it with a whole different thing. And so that's like a really good example of... Mm-hmm. Maybe they wanted to change the license, or maybe they wanted to change the program language or something, but they still felt it was a part of that original project. So it takes that split. Um, And so that's really one of the strongest points where we can see one of those founder decisions being reversed or changed. Just because they were decisions made at the foundation doesn't mean that they're written in stone. Right. Though, part of what I'm arguing is that the kind of ideology that was was behind that initial decision impacts every other decision uh, onward. And there's a, there's actually a term for this. I, maybe there's another term because I sure couldn't find all that much in the literature, but constitutional decisions are these decisions which underpin all other decisions being made. And so one, they're like really impactful across the entire organization. Two, they're like very sticky. They're hard to change because of that. Mm-hmm. And so you could say that in one of these moments where changes licenses or forks or something like that, it's still whatever that underpinned thing is 
you can't really get rid of it. And that's that's where I take the jump from constitutional decision to founder decision is the thing it had communicated during the whole lifespan. You can't uncommunicate that. Yeah. Mm hmm. So why don't we come back to crisis events and finish up the founders' decisions part? Because you were, you were said you were making a focus on license choices within here. So you actually lay out a few different kind of axes of license choices, but I think we're gonna your the most of your dissertation and most of kind of FOSS discourse focuses on these two categories you're calling permissive and uh, sometimes called lax licenses and protective, which are often frequently called copyleft licenses. So do you want to explain what kind of the difference between those choices are and what their legal impact is and also maybe what they signal to a community potentially? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I'm kind of looking at permissive and protective licenses. And permissive licenses and protective licenses are both part of what we might call like free library open source software licenses and i i do use that term because it includes all these different things and there are some other terms that potentially will sprout or not sprout and we'll see what happens but the idea is that all of these licenses are about taking the kind of the intellectual property work that goes into source code uh, the programming work and then putting that into the commons making them public goods making them something that the copyright holder the, which is the way copyright law works. Whoever kind of created these things gets the copyright, uh, quote unquote, like you don't have to file for it, it just is yours. And so it takes the copyright holder's work and guarantees uh, certain kind of freedoms. Permissive licenses, those freedoms apply only to the work of that person. Whereas protective licenses also guarantee that any derived work so any remixes things like that must also remain in the commons and so copyleft licensing has often been called like viral uh, or things like that and some people even say it's restrictive because it restricts the choice of future developers by saying no you you're not allowed to take this back out of the commons you must keep it there but that's to me kind of exactly what these things are supposed to do and they're protecting uh, the intellectual property saying, no, you can't just take that intellectual property and uh, pull it back out. So they're using the teeth of kind of the intellectual restriction legal regime and turning the teeth against basically the system as kind of a hack to keep things in the commons, basically. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So having established that, you you mentioned that there are these different crisis events. So you mentioned one of them being a forking event. And in your thesis, you mentioned two others, one of which you were measuring. So do you want to give what those other two uh, types are? Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, there's forking events. There's also maintainer transitions. We don't want to conceptualize every project as only having one person, but the core person who commits things, especially as we start talking at my analysis here, that person can change. And then the last one is a security announcement. The thing that's common about all three of these, and I'm sure there are examples out there, is that there's some sort of uh, publicly visible announcement or whatnot that has the potential of shaking the trust that this project will continue. And, you know, the, the idea that, like, I'm a, a developer coming in, and I, I'm getting to decide where to put my time. And if I heard that they uh, just had a security vulnerability. I can say, well, I don't know. Is that there's this other piece that's had no security vulnerabilities. Maybe I should spend my time over there. 
Right. Like so, so heart heartbleed and open SSL was kind of a famous example of that. And for a while, people were actually also considering whether or not they should adopt the fork, as it turns out. And then kind of it things reconverged back towards the original project, I think. It, but but that that was kind of both. I know we've discussed Heartbleed on this podcast before, but for people who maybe not have not listened to that episode, can you give more context to that? Uh, Heartbleed was this uh, large vulnerability that was discovered in uh, OpenSSL. And basically, OpenSSL is the thing that protects every website with HTTPS and other uh, secure internet transactions like online shopping. As it had turned out, there was only one person maintaining this software or uh, putting any time into it. And uh, this vulnerability had been there for like quite some time. And it became like publicly announced that like, oh, look, this thing that runs the entire internet is uh, vulnerable. (laughs) 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 And so I might say these moments of instability come up. And during them, there are different potential outcomes. Either a project could just stay the same course, it could become what you might say extinct, <laughs> uh, have everything fall off and eventually probably shudder, or it could be resilient. And that's where that announcement, that moment of instability, uh, people gather around it to support it and lift it up. The measure I'm looking at and the, kind of the language I may be using around this is development activity. And that's there are lots of things you could look at. But development activity is very important to the development of this software. And especially in the free software context, it's not one person. And the people who are giving their time aren't usually doing it because of a large paycheck. It's it's kind of like how much steam is going on in the project, right? Right. What struck me was that you point out that it's often kind of like an adrenaline shot in the arm for a number of projects, right? Like, so... You know, like OpenSSL is actually a great example where there was both a loss of confidence, but it also led to a huge revival, an enormous allocation of resources that didn't exist before for the project. Is that is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably especially pertinent when you have a single person doing the majority of the work and people just don't know that that's a single person doing it so when that's exposed then other people come out of the woodwork to help hopefully yeah i would say so and uh actually my colleague kaylee champion who's also part of the community data science collective uh, has really been focusing on these aspects of underproduction so why do we find that some of these very very widely relied upon and used projects basically have very little support uh, institutionally or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And yeah, her, her body works is great as well. So would recommend maybe see if she's interested uh, in coming on at some point. <laughs> All right. That would be cool. Okay. So going into your thesis research, what uh, hypotheses or kind of preconceived ideas did you have about this work? Sure. So again, I've been kind of steeped in this world. And uh, I guess I, I'm really a believer in uh, copyleft and the idea that uh, these intellectual property laws are often very restrictive. And it, while it would be great if we could get rid of them, using that hack, as, as was mentioned earlier, is a pretty decent way to get around them. Uh, with that, I, I mean, my hope was to be able to show that they're better than permissive in all cases, and we can then just suggest always use copyleft. So 
upon that, I, I built three hypotheses. So the first one is that uh, Floss projects with pr protective licenses will have more development activity compared to those with permissive licenses. So just what they'll they'll just have more. My second hypothesis, uh, looking at the crisis events, is that when a crisis event occurs, it will increase the rate of development activities just across all Floss projects. Just uh, kind of that beaming of the spotlight will mean that people rally behind it versus fall off immediately. Mm -hmm. And the third hypothesis is that Floss projects uh, with protective licenses will demonstrate an increased uh, development resilience after that crisis event compared to those of permissive. So this is the idea of like we've built and looked at the different ways that they interact uh, separately and how will they look when they come together. Specifically, how resilient are they? How how much, considering them before and considering them, at, them after, can we say that protective licenses will, I guess, protect more? Great. And how did you go about this research? Yeah. So uh, kind of the big first thing, other than conceptualizing it, was um, doing data collection. And uh, again, I used Debian, and we kind of explained that earlier on. Uh, specifically, I had to take kind of this unformed, widely accessible and open data, but bring it all together. And so uh, Debian has really good web-based package listings, and I used uh, Scrapy or Scrapy to find the correct URLs for the changelog files, the license files, grab all, you know, the name and the different things I might need and put it all into one big uh, table. With that, I also found Debian's security advisories, which are, again, that measure of crisis event, that moment of something's broken yeah your system is vulnerable yeah like it's the the klaxon alarm of like <laughs> you gotta you gotta deal with this right yeah you have to deal with this and uh you know with any of these academic projects like we can I mean, speak more to it later but there's always ways you might do something a little better but you kind of have to play with the data that you have and uh, this seemed very accessible for what that crisis event is i do have future data of like was that a high or a low criticalness of security advisory? And so, so future work could look into and draw distinctions around some of that. Mm -hmm. And then the, the last one was I used the IFROS License Center, which is a German institute uh, for free and open source software. And, you know, there are all these lists of what licenses are more permissive or more protective, but a lot of them come from kind of entities that, like have a lot of skin in the game uh, in the sense of you know the Free Software Foundation really, really wants us to be using copyleft licenses. Mm -hmm. uh, like founded them, basically. <laughs> um, not basically, right? <laughs> um, and then uh, the open source initiative is like the holder of the definition of what is open source and often casts a much wider net that allows these permissive licenses. So instead, I wanted to find a third party, and I found it with this center. And then, of course, they're a they have a little more nuance, and I did end up collapsing that in the end to just permissive versus protective. One more thing I would like to add, somewhat important, is just that when looking at this software, especially because I'm looking at development activity, a lot, a lot of people have asked, like, why didn't you just look at the source code commits? And, th and that's often been a measure people looked at. 
I looked at maintainers on Debian because source code commits are like very lumpy. You know, you have people who got off their, their students and they have summer off and so they do a bunch of work and then the rest of the year they don't do as much. People who maintain software packages on Debian often are maintaining more than one, partly because of the hurdles to become like a Debian developer. And given that, I can I can use it to say, well, if this person who normally submits their packages once a month had to submit this one a lot more or didn't submit this one to a lot less, it gets rid of the noise that might be seen at the source code level. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of how why how and why I conceptualize maintainers versus specific developers mm-hmm. uh, when looking at these. So you have a bunch of data now. And I guess the job of every data scientist or statistician is to beat that data into a shape that we can understand, or if not beating the data, um, then I guess grinding it through some sort of visualization or analytical tool or whatever. So what did you end up doing to make sense of all of this raw data? How did you put it through your analysis meat grinder? Yeah. So I again, I took took it all using Scrapey, and used a little bit of Pandas to form just the raw Python output into uh, text, and then I put it into R. And R is like, I don't know, grandfather of statistical analysis software if you aren't going to use a, a like closed source, hand-holding Excel drop-down style, mm-hmm. uh, style analysis. And you know, I used a bit of the tidyverse, I used a bit of these different things to really get bunches of rows where every row was a different commit of a piece of software. Um, so that's kind of for that measurement of development activity. And I used statistical analysis uh, specifically when I was considering the idea that it's a changelog and you have them in order and you kind of increasing and, and there's dates and whatnot. Wait, and a change log is a document describing a set of changes that are happening to a piece of software with the releases that are coming out, right? Right, exactly. And so you might consider that, and I think the kind of technical term might be that it's a time series uh, model. And with that, I used different forms of linear regression as ways to conduct kind of statistical analysis. And so I came up with three different models, and the models are linear mixed effect regression models. And like we can go down the math rabbit hole. Uh, Maybe let's not. I was going to say, feel free to reach out to me at some point. Uh, not here. I mean, you do include the formulas in your dissertation, so you probably don't need to read them out loud on this podcast. No, absolutely. Um, the kind of the big three distinctions that you could could draw is that the first model is just looking at licenses the second model is just looking at uh, the security of announcements and the third model is looking at both and all three consider uh, random effects and try to do advanced statistical processing to get rid of the noise the first two are like the main things you're looking at and the third one is like what can we understand by kind of looking um, analytically at the two of them combined then is that right yeah that's about right okay cool so I was just going to say what I kind of did with these stats models is I ran the whole load of projects, 28,775 projects with 534,473 changelog entries. That's so why I 
ran all of those through these models and generated prototypical projects uh, that uh, only differed on the one variable of interest, so license security or both. Cool. I know we just said people can reach out to you if they want to see your uh, equations separately, but will the data be open and your findings be reproducible? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything's going to be on the Harvard Dataverse, which is a uh, one of these big spaces where people can publish and link to it. And you know, we're hoping we'll stay up for all of time. I'm uh, in the process of taking the thesis work, which I had to defend to my committee, mm -hmm. and turning it into a journal publication ready version, which will then get peer reviewed and hopefully published. And that version will really be where I, okay, this is the more clean data. This is the everything uh, will be built. Oh, which actually, and you mentioned the reproducible part. I wrote the entire paper in LaTeX and with R. So as I update the data, the paper updates itself, which I know you spoke uh, quite a bit about on your uh, dissertation episode. So bravo. <laughs> it, that's a great way to incorporate data research into your actual source document. So what were your findings then on this? My first two hypotheses were, were pretty supported. The first one about how these prototypical projects differ, just looking at the license family, the changelog for kind of the base time changelogs had permissive kind of winning out a little bit. And for the first changelog entry, it had permissive winning out a little bit. Close, close to double, in fact, kind of that when the project was started till the first changelog, I showed 6.6 .6 days for permissive and 10.23 days. Uh, these are, of course, very much on average for protective. So that was kind of not supporting my hypotheses. Yeah. However, the rate increase between those was uh, quite a bit higher for protective. And so, we can, of course, you can't really see this uh, on the podcast, but if you look at the paper and to kind of describe what's going on is you have two lines. And they may start at slightly different, but almost the same spots. And then they're like kind of not straight up, but they're a, a really high fitting curve that's going from uh, at the bottom, the change number, right? Like one to 50. And then on the side, the days between the change log entries. And so these lines are showing that rate increase. And what it's showing is that for all projects, it gets slower. Development activity falls off. So you may start and you're doing lots of commits and then you get less and less and less. And and the reason for that is something we I could look into further. Other people have looked into some of this, but we don't really see a story where people get faster as they develop more. Mm -hmm. It happens sometimes, but it's pretty rare. Right. Yeah, of course, all of this is looking at, uh, again, quote unquote, big data. Uh, so a lot of those nuances get washed out. But this is basically the shapes of kind of the development narrative, basically. Yeah. And the reason I say it's mixed support, but I would suggest that it's uh, supporting protective licenses, you know, the team I'm rooting for, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that the speed at which those changes slow down is quicker for permissive than protective. So protective licenses, it slows down at a slower rate. Mm -hmm. Wait, if we're going to say that, we also should mention the, the, the start of this, right? Which is that... Um, you also mentioned that permissive projects tend to ramp up faster. So it's basically like, it's almost as if you had like a, a project that ramped up with great enthusiasm, but also closed, shuts down at, at like a, at a 
at a faster rate, whereas kind of the protective license ones seem to, on average, have kind of a slower ramp up, but also a slower ramp down, which means they have a longer longevity, usually. Is that about right? That's a tortoise in the hare situation. That's a great way to put it. And I, I wish, you know, if we were on video, I have uh, my, my shirt of like the, the hare slowly riding the tortoise. And it's uh, excellent <laughs> working together. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that was the first model, again, just looking at that difference in what the license was. The second one looked at the difference in what happens when we encounter a crisis. And um, it supported my hypothesis. It basically said, when we have a crisis, the rate... Uh, so it doesn't sp- speed up. That's I guess that was an interesting finding across all of these. The development activity uh, rate never speeds up. It's always this kind of diminishing, diminishing activity. However, it diminishes at a much slower rate after the crisis event. So it was uh, 1.98 days before, and this is just on average, all all projects. Uh, and then after the crisis event, it was 1.45 days. And this is the rate increase between the changelog entries. And then the third model uh, actually does not support my hypotheses. I kind of explained this a little further, but but it's it's partly because of how I wrote the hypotheses, and, and I really wanted to get to this question of resilience. And so this is graphically kind of interesting. We, we see very similar lines before the crisis event to what we expected seeing the graphs from Model 1. But then that crisis event happens, and the protective one doesn't look like it's changed that much, except that it's shifted up, meaning that that next commit, that next kind of heartbeat of development activity after a crisis event took actually quite a while. Like the, the number of days increased, but then the curve stayed pretty similar. Do you mind if I ask a question about this? I have a hi- hypothesis about this uh, non-finding of your hypothesis. So <laughs> so first of all, let me let me see if I can uh, articulate this in my own words to see if I'm understanding this right, because this is a part that I was a little bit least certain about in the thesis. So basically, this is talking about that kind of shot of adrenaline in the arm from the crisis event. And it looks like there's actually a little bit more of a result from that shot in the permissive ones than there is in the protective ones. But it it doesn't look like a huge difference, but it does look like there's a difference. So first of all, before I I give my hypothesis as to why that is, is that that a a correct interpretation of what your thing says? Yeah, no, that's, that's correct. Okay. Um, so here's here's my guess as to why that is. Projects which tend to be more protective tend to be more end-user facing pieces of software, like for example, as opposed to, for example, an image rendering library, it might be actually image editing software, right? And in you know, so so stuff like that, right? You know, instead of the an audio rendering library, it would be audio editing software or something like that, right? Or an audio player, like, you know, like a, vi- a video audio player. My guess, personally, is that part of the difference might actually be that the sh- there's maybe more resources available for a shot in the arm for the more permissive stuff, since it tends to be more developer infrastructure, which tends to get better corporate support as well. Would you think that that there's, I mean, I, I'm guessing you did not study this, but would that mesh with any of your thinking, or do you think that that's way off base? No, that I, that seems correct based on kind of the narrative we've often heard about when it's better to use a permissive license. 
you know, the idea that companies won't back things that they can't monetize in uh, these future ways. So I, I think that that aligns with my thinking as well. But in a certain sense, it also kind of shows why I think that protective licenses tend to be more often applied to end user oriented software than for kind of infrastructure stuff is because there's not as often an interest in kind of monetizing something restrictive on top of it. It's really the thing that you're actually delivering. So maybe that also accounts for kind of the different shapes of some of these these structures as well. And also maybe why some of this lasts longer is that um, part is that the community as kind of end users has a lot of investment in terms of this is, you know, this is the audio editor I use. This is the graphics editor I use or whatever and stuff like that. What what do you think? Yeah. Uh, I, again, I think you're, you're hitting a lot of the nails on the head. I have not studied it as deeply as I'd like. I have decent amount of data on uh, what, what differentiates these different projects. And I have not, um, well, it's, it's one, it's, Pretty bit kind of messy. It's hard to identify within the uh, kind of Debian like category scope of audio which ones are end user versus not end user. And there's some heuristics I've considered uh, potentially looking at for a future project that gets at what you're saying. But just based on like kind of gut feeling, I I would say that those, you're hitting the nail on the head. What are the implications of these findings to maybe the FOSS world in general? I guess one of the big things is like if you if you have a kind of long-term community that you want to build around something, a protective license might be the preferred one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you really just care about having an initial jolt of development activity, and if you're really again, I've only looked at this one crisis event, but if you're looking at uh, how to address security vulnerabilities, then protective licenses may suit you better. I would say, and uh, kind of as our little little back and forth right there went, um, that protective licenses are basically going to be your friends, especially for anything end user oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you're if you're explicitly looking for something maybe lower level on the infrastructure side of things, maybe you do get access to more resources from that type of direction. Um, but you might not end up with as rich of a community structure or something. Right, and um, and so this. I guess I, to, to end cap the findings on Model 3, um, the term resilience is applying to how, um, how like well the community or the activity could bounce back after the crisis. And for the permissive licenses, it's actually like after that crisis, it gets uh, significantly healthier than it was before because it was pretty unhealthy before. Whereas protective licenses don't change that much because they, they're pl- kind of plodding along they're, they're as before. Um, but they get a little healthier, but just not as like drastically. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wonder, why do you think it is that we see these kind of different, let's say, shapes of the graph for these, um, for license traces, right? So there's a founder decision clearly being made. Now, most developers don't spend much time actually reading legal text. And even in the case of most protective licenses, um, they're enforced, uh, not enforced as often as maybe many copyleft enthusiasts would like, 
um you know it which doesn't mean that there's not a network effect right if somebody is still enforcing things sometimes it actually means that there's more of a community assumption that it might be enforced but um do you think that this has more to do with the actual structural content of the license um as in terms of its legal text and etc or the signal it's sending its community as in terms of what the community should expect yeah no uh, great question and i i definitely feel like it's more about the signal it's sending um when you know you look at a lot of these projects and a lot of these communities the folks who who believe in that protective message often want to put their energy towards things that are protectively licensed and people who don't necessarily worry as much about that i think actually just don't look at the license as much they just want to make sure it's an open source license do you mean that kind of like the there's maybe more of a user freedom kind of focused and enthusiasm towards the the protective license side of things because that's the uh let's say commons enthusiast type area primarily not saying that there's not in the permissive areas just that that's where it tends to kind of aggregate yeah at least memetically at the moment yeah that's definitely what i kind of went in and built this research on and coming out i still have uh, hold that same opinion so you mentioned at the top of the episode that you were both taking this approach from a communication sociology standpoint, but also looking at communities that you're actively part of. And I wanted to know what your thoughts or feelings were on being part of that community while you're actively researching it. What kind of impact that had on the way that you went about this research? Did a microscope actually actively swoop over your head as you were doing the research? <laughs> and were you holding that microscope? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. so I, I did kind of think, I'm like, how much am I or am I not in my own data? I guess it was really nice being able to have conversations as I was developing this to get input along the way and see whether or not the direction I was heading kind of made any sense mm -hmm. i also held a couple of like you know, birds of a feather-esque events now at uh, lexfest liberty planet debconf uh where i ask for founders to come together and kind of tell tell me their experience mm -hmm. i don't know it, what exactly will come out of some of those conversations but the idea that i can actively be having those conversations I think makes the research a lot more interesting and feel more real to me. On the flip side, I, you know, as much as I would have liked to have changed the language a little bit for my third hypothesis in such a way that this is just like, yay, go protective licenses. I, I did kind of pre-register things so that I, I, I was really careful not to look at my data before I had written what my hypotheses were, for instance. Mm -hmm. to kind of hold myself accountable to that because I knew going into this that I, again, had a team I'm rooting for, but that doesn't change the neutrality of the science I'm trying to conduct. Mm -hmm. What's the name of that where your, your hypothesis changes after being exposed to um, the results are known? There's some sort of well-known... Oh, yeah, harking, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, hypothesizing after results are known. So, so you, you made an active effort to not hark. Um, which means that maybe you're like a little bit disappointed with number three, but that's that's good, right? Because you actually want to 
that's the whole point of having a hypothesis mm-hmm. is to not necessarily do that, right? Right. Then drawing the narrative later and trying to explain it in such a way that it isn't as much of a disappointment. It's interesting and it does bring up further questions that can be explored. I think that's how we can produce good science. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, cool. I think we got through most of the stuff we wanted to say in terms of uh, discussing your thesis directly, unless if you have something else you feel like we've missed uh, so far. Uh, no, I I don't think so. I guess just uh, we talked a little bit about kind of the pr- practitioner contributions. In terms of the academy uh, and like scholarly works, mm-hmm. I really was surprised at how much people hadn't looked into this idea of like resilience uh, in terms of development. When the crisis events are studied, they're usually studied for what the actual crisis was, and like how it happened, how it came to be, but not that corner. And so that, that I'm hoping we'll get more attention now with this. Uh, similar with the founder decisions. I have this, this kind of weird interest in, in almost measuring ideological strength and I don't know if I have a good handle on it, but a lot of this work was trying to think about ways to approach it. And then, like, say I run this study and I run every combination of the, the founder decisions and crisis events that I'd come up with. And maybe that will be able to get us to an understanding of something that just seems like no one's even tried to tackle because it is such like a wicked problem. Mm-hmm. Well, so reading your thesis actually had an interesting effect on me. And and actually, it seems like you pre-anticipated it in ways that I wouldn't have. And uh, um, I actually found it pretty inspiring, which is when I think of crisis events, I get an enormous amount of anxiety because what I mostly focus on is that that idea that, you know, every it feels like everything's going to collapse, but that you went into this and, and also that a lot of the data seem to show that crisis events don't mean that everything's over, right? Because, you, you know, these things get announced, right? I remember when when op- the heart bleed happened, there was all this stuff all over the internet that's like, haha, you know, open open SSL is effed, you know, and there's just kind of a lot of this armchair BS. And it seems like that's not true. Like, actually, the opposite can really be the case that m- sometimes these can be opportunities to seize a moment and to strengthen and build upon that moment in your community. Is it is do you think that's true? Is that is that a correct takeaway? Yeah, no, you really well put. I am very much uh, always hoping for the more positive stories, and I think you're you're right on that. These moments of crisis are kind of beacons of light that can draw the community closer and and be more generative. I mean, not to bring it as too real, but you know, we're recording this and we're still within the COVID nineteen pandemic, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the Kind of huge achievements that's come out of it is that we're having these mRNA vaccines that probably would have taken you know a quarter decade or longer before they'd be out, and now are basically going to replace the previous vaccine technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe even longer. Yeah. yeah, and hopefully because there were multiple companies funded and and able to produce it, that also means there will be some kind of diversity and you know i know there's been at least a few calls to revoke the patents on this stuff Mm. i would like to say just one more thing about licensing and the fact that this is your thesis on the episodes with my dissertation we talked about how it was released under a cc by sa license and we talked in this episode about how you have 
open data and it's reproducible, but also your thesis itself is also licensed under a Creative Commons attribution share alike license. Yeah, it is. And, and that, uh, as I think you, you kind of pointed out in your episodes, wasn't that straightforward? Wasn't that easy? Mm-hmm. In terms of the academic end yeah. of things, right? Not as in terms of... Well, actually both. It, but applying it to your own work could not be easier, right? But Yes and no. So for like the bureaucracy and academic portion, uh, there's con- there were conflicting guidelines that basically said the copyright page mm-hmm. could not contain any images. It had to be black and white with text only. Oh. It, right, but the license from the library said that, no, you put it like this and showed their demonstration had the cc with it with the icon yeah oh man oh so your library actually had guidelines for how to do a cc license not yes and no they they said that they did and then you look and follow links and there's nothing really written except they link to a slideshow presentation that has an example (laughs) oh wow (laughs) yeah that sounds that sounds slightly better than madison So I didn't include the icon for the license on mine. I just did the text because I think it's the UMI, the thesis and dissertation database is the one that says that you your copyright page can only have text on it Correct. so I, I followed those guidelines yeah yeah it was a uh, proquest i think were, were the ones that yeah. were yelling about that but um <laughs> i was so i was able to get the that page with the icon on it which kind of leads me back to that that other side technologically speaking there's a maintainer for our uh, the university of washington thesis latex package and um, I wrote an extension to be able to select CC licenses, like via a variable, because I was like, well, mm-hmm. if I'm already having to do this. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. That is also better than Madison, because there is a unofficial LaTeX template for the Madison dissertation format, but it was made by a student and it was like made eight years ago by a student and has not been maintained. Yeah. So the fact that you have a maintainer for that is great. <laughs> in other words, since we like to talk about thoughts and academia on this show, this is this seems like an underexplored area that could really use some advocacy, basically. Yeah. I told one of my colleagues that I was participating in an article that I will officially announce later when it comes out about using... Creative Commons licensing for academic works and about how I did that for my dissertation. And her response was, but is that like a thing that people do or is that just you? (laughs) Yeah, well, it is it is definitely a thing that people do. And I'm excited to read that article. I'll say that there's been quite a large push for open access and Mm -hmm. uh, the Creative Commons is, to me, a very clear extension of that. Agreed. If you're using a BISA license, protective way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the protective aspect, uh, if we're going to kind of like shift your thesis research onto academic writing, that also kind of mitigates some of the academic fears about releasing things in open access, right? If you release it uh, essay, share alike, then that takes away the, but what if someone quote unquote steals my research? Right. Because instead of it being your research it's somewhat of the research that is now part of the like zeitgeist Mm -hmm. and they have to give you attribution anyways so which is a thing people are really afraid of Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean academics 
cite other academics all the time. So that should be a concept that is pretty accessible for scholars to understand. I was talking about this with a friend who publishes, uh, she, she teaches mathematics, and they apparently don't have the same citation rules and, and understandings that we all do because math is not something that is lives under copyright. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you just don't have to cite a lot of your things because it was just, well, it's math. Yeah, and... it's just a constant, <laughs> universal. Yeah. So we like to, in our wrap-up with interviews, we like to always ask the question, since this is FOSS and crafts, what are you currently crafting? Yeah, well, crafting such, like, a could be considered such a broad thing. We consider it broad. Yeah, like... I don't know. Before the episode started, I was telling you all on about one of the things, which is I've been kind of relaunching my web presence, mm-hmm. which meant transitioning from like an older static site generator to a new one. And uh, by the time this episode's released, I'll, I'll have like my new live domain, which is five characters, uh, sal.td. So I'm pretty <laughs> excited about uh, that. Uh, in the more kind of hands-on world, I've been working on a new tunic. I have uh, some linens that I got in, and so I'm kind of working on. I do I do some of the. I don't know. It's not larping. It's not reenacting. But it's 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 garb. It's garb. I like to live in it. <laughs> You're the person I associate most with uh, um, the intersection of foss and kilt. Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm on version four. Well, I've done version four. I'm on version <laughs> five of my own kilt design. Uh, and I'm looking, if anyone is, does, uh, commercial patterns, that's, that's one of the things I'm also kind of working on. Oh, yeah, Yeah, we should get you in the free software (laughs) thing we've been talking about. Um, Oh yeah. I love that name. Oh my gosh. I totally forgot. I love. Yeah. Thank you, Kat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, and yeah. And then I, I mean, I have a couple of kind of free software projects that I have been pretty involved with which is also kind of crafting so uh, one being snowdrift.coop uh, and i've kind of crossing the team board divide as i bring some of the research into organizational communication things like that as we try to create a structure that is both open and respectful of everyone but will eventually get us to a launching point so is there anything else that we missed somehow in the the the, the course of this that you'd like us to cover I guess the last one's the one thing I should mention, and I think we're we're going to. This is a great place to to announce and mention. I don't know how. I mean, it's been publicized a little bit, but mm-hmm. uh, I've been working on Seagull, uh, the Seattle Canoe Linux Conference, SEAGL, for nine years now, and we're holding a virtual event on November fifth and sixth, and we have fantastic keynotes. Two of the favorites. Uh, oh, who who could it be? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All three of us will be speaking at Seagull yes. because uh, we have Christine and Morgan Lumberweber as our keynotes. But you'll also be joined with Marie Norton, Alana Hashman, and Corey Doctorow. So I'm I'm like so stoked about this. And thank you so much for accepting. That's a great lineup. It's an incredible lineup and and like almost kind of intimidating, actually. Right? Our names are in the same sentence with Corey yeah. Doctorow. And we, we've already had Alana Hashman on the show. So like, you, you already know yes. what we feel about. Yeah, so it's, it's great. We're, we're really excited. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I am also excited. 
I think we still need to get the official like title and description of our talk <laughs> to <laughs> Seagull. We're gonna but do it. we are going to be talking about the idea of interdisciplinarity and how that can apply both to your academic projects and your FOSS projects. That sounds wonderful. Uh, I'm very, very, very excited. And as much as uh, the, the correct term is colony, I, I just have to say that Seagull's a real friendly flock. So I, I'm, I'm happy to welcome y'all into it. And uh, anyone else listening to this episode, I'm sure you'd, fi- you'd find a good space there. Yeah, we're excited to talk there. We, we mentioned to a friend that we had a seagull interview this week, and she was like, wait, you're interviewing a seagull? <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've ended uh, crossing from your self-promotion into our self-promotion, uh, I, I guess that's probably a pretty good place to wrap up, I think. Yeah. I think so. So thank you again for joining us, and we are very excited about your research. So thank you for sharing yes. it with us and our audience. You know, this was awesome. Th- thank you so much for having me and for being beautiful humans that have put together such a lovely podcast. Oh, thank you. Oh, thanks so much. All right. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Chris Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Chris Slimmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts, at octodon.social on twitter as at foss and crafts or you can email us podcast at fossandcrafts.org we also have a chat room join our community in hash foss and crafts at irc.libera.chat if you'd like to support the show you can donate at patreon.com forward slash foss and crafts that's it for this week until next time stay free and stay crafty Are you talking about the license lists? Yeah. That's that's five episodes in a, in and of itself. Let's not get into okay, that right now. Okay, then we will not right, believe right, that right. That, yeah, that's, that's, that, this is not, that, that, yeah, that, that's five episodes. Um, <laughs> like, <danger laughs> <more>. <laughs> that's right.